0: Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy to us. We thank you for the little signs of divine grace that we see all around us. We think of the beauty of the snow that's falling this very moment. We think of the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. We think of the intricacy of life and the many biological systems that have to function in harmony with one another in order for us to even be alive at this very moment. There are too many things to count or to measure, and words fail to describe to us the immensity of your grace, and so we pray that you might Help us to focus our thoughts on Scripture in front of us. That you would help the message to be clear. The text would be something that changes us. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name, amen. It'll be in Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 13 today. Amos 4, 6 through 13. Bruce Beach was a doomsday prepper from Canada, who buried 42 school buses in the ground in the 1980s in order to survive a nuclear fallout. He called his compound of connected school buses underground ARC-2. His compound was supposed to house 500 individuals, and it was supposed to save humanity from itself. The only problem is that Beach died last May of a heart attack. He invested years of his life in an obsession to save himself and to save humanity only to succumb to death himself, to never face this supposed uh, apocalypse that was coming uh, that he would save humanity from. End times scenarios and doomsday scenarios are a dime a dozen today, and it is not limited to quote-unquote religious people either. Everybody is telling us that the world is ending. One might think of uh, the uh, dozens of false claims and failed end times predictions of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Eventually, after so many of these failed predictions, they had to simply say, well, he did come back. It was just a spiritual return of Christ, not a physical return, in order to cover their tracks of dozens of dozens of dozens of failed predictions. One might think of the insane predictions of Harold Camping, Who caused some people to use their entire life savings in order to promote the second coming of Christ on a specific day at a specific time, which never materialized? In addition, again, the non religious quote unquote world, the scientific community has offered numerous predictions regarding the end of the world due to, most recently, climate change predictions were made back in the 1970s uh, up to today most recently uh, representative AOC has warned us that if we don't take action we only have a few years left before the end of the world I want to read to you from uh, an article that describes one such prediction that was given by a UN uh, official in 1989 okay In the article, a senior UN environmental official claims that if global warming isn't reversed by 2000, okay, 23 years ago now, then rising sea levels would wipe out entire nations off the face of the earth. Crop failures coupled with coastal flooding, he said, could provoke an exodus of eco-refugees whose movements could wreak political chaos all over the world. Unabated, the ice caps will melt away, the rainforest will burn, and the world will warm to unbearable temperatures. Government, governments have a 10 year window of opportunity to solve the greenhouse effects before it goes beyond human control, said the UN official. That was 1989. Time and time again, from scientists, politicians, theologians, doomsday doomsday preppers, and everyone in between, we have these dire predictions that if we don't do something now, the world will end. And while most people have a tendency to just go on with their lives as usual, some people devote their entire lives to preparing for the impending doom. Politicians and scientists advocate for policies that are supposedly going to reverse the direction of the climate. Christians, as I've already mentioned, will spend their life savings on promotional campaigns, billboards, and literature to warn the world that it will end on a certain day and time. And doomsday preppers will neglect their families in order to save their families by by investing millions of dollars in underground bunkers, ventilation systems, and years of food stocked up. But what is missing in each of these scenarios, outside of the um, uh, kind of uh, craziness of them, what is missing in each of these scenarios is the proper and the right preparation of the soul. Specifically, the preparation of the soul to meet God. That is why today's passage in Amos 4, specifically says these words, prepare to meet your God. Out of all of the preparations that we could do, out of all the preps that we could store up, out of everything that we could do to to prepare for what's coming, setting aside all the sensationalized stuff, the number one thing that any human being can do to prepare is to prepare your soul to meet your God. Nothing compares to that. And that is something worth preparing for. If we are willing to prepare for a wedding or to prepare for a driver's examination or to prepare for a career, we certainly should prepare for the most important and life altering encounter we will ever have, and that is meeting God face to face. Let's read this text in front of us. Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. "'I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me,' declares the Lord." I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew that uh, your, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I, over, I overthrew some of you as when Sod- God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. We're going to look at these several verses today by using the following outline. We're going to simply see the patience of God in verses 6 through 11, and then the judgment of God in verses 12 through 13. I, I don't know if they've all been uh, taken or not, but I did hand out uh, an outline of the text today um, that um, kind of details uh, the direction uh, that we'll be going. So hopefully that's uh, helpful to you. The patience of God in verses 6 through 11. If I had to give to you one New Testament passage that I would say is the New Testament parallel to Amos 4, it would be Second Peter 3, 9 through 10, okay? In 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10, here's what we read. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In Second Peter three, nine through ten, you have the same basic outline as you have in Amos four. 6 through 13. Okay? You have the patience of God, and then you have the judgment of God. And in both passages, you have the fact that God is a very, 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 very patient God. Okay? But in both passages, you have the fact that one day, at a time unbeknownst to you, the patience of God will wear out and he will give judgment It's in both passages in the in the amos text and in the second peter text the first portion of amos 4 here uh that, that were 6 through 10 deals with god's patience and specifically that patience is expressed through multiple prompts That the lord has used in order to push israel to repentance specifically there are five of them and each concludes with the same chilling statement do you see the chilling statement in the passage okay yet you did not return to me i warned you this way and you didn't return i did this you didn't return did this and did this did this, did this you didn't return didn't return didn't return didn't return let's look at each of these five warnings in turn In Amos 4, 6, we read this, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. What does it mean? God is giving five warnings to Israel. And the first warning is, I gave you cleanness of teeth. What does that mean? Okay, this does not mean, okay, that they had toothbrushes, or dental hygienists in Israel, okay? this does not mean that they got their teeth all cleaned up, okay? What does it mean to say that he gave them clean teeth? Well, the next statement kind of clarifies that for us, right? Because it says um, in verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, okay? What kind of people have clean teeth, okay? People who are not eating any food. You're not getting your teeth dirty, okay, because you're not eating food. When God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth, he's saying, I sent famine to you. I did not allow you to eat food. To give Israel clean teeth was to prompt them to repent by withholding food. Okay, you're going to go that way? Okay, I'm going to give you a famine. I'm going to give you clean teeth. I'm going to remove your bread from you. They were starving, and yet this did not cause them to return. One might think that starvation would prompt one to consider. I wonder whether God's trying to tell me something. And yet they entertained no such thought. The second prompt or warning is given to us in verses 7 through 8. He says, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. This is, of course, drought. The first warning is famine. The second warning is drought. The Lord withheld rain. The Lord also sent rain, as he says, on one city, but not on another city. One field has rain, one has not. What this meant is that Israel was constantly wandering around, going from city to city. Do you have water? Do you have water? Do you have water? We need water. Same result. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The next warning can be found in verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. After the famine and the drought, the Lord next attacked their agriculture, gardens, vineyards, fig trees, olive trees, all destroyed by disease and insects. Surprisingly, we have the same statement again. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Next warning is given in verse 10. He says, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The Hebrew word for pestilence means plague, um, actually, some uh, lexicons, by the way, that I uh, looked up for this specifically said bubonic plague. Okay? It's, it's a serious plague. Similar to the plagues that God sent on Egypt, God sends plagues now, not on Israel's enemies, but on Israel herself. In addition, he uses war to kill their young men. But the result is what? Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The final warning is given in verse 11. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. This is like the height of the divine warnings, okay? I mean, if you think of all of the passages in the Old Testament where God is pouring out his divine wrath and judgment on people, there, there's not many that, that rank in kind of the top tier. You have Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? You could probably put um, the, the global flood in the, one of these top, but you have several of these judgments that, that rank in the top. You have Sodom and Gomorrah where the Lord sends fire and brimstone out of heaven and burns up an entire community because of their sinfulness. And now God is saying, I did something very similar to you. (laughs) Israel does not want to be in that category, okay? You can can give, give me a little warning, give me a little nod, give me a push, but if you have to take me to that level, to Sodom and Gomorrah level, okay, there's something serious going on. And so this is the height of the Lord's warnings. He compares his judgment against Israel to the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. God overthrew Israelites in the same manner that he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And those that rescued, he, he, he describes the people who are re- rescued. It's, it's like you go to a place where, where a forest fire has completely demolished uh, a forest and you're kind of kicking around in the ashes and it's like you, you kind of uncover this, this scrap of something that survived the fire, surprisingly. That's what he describes it like. You were as a brand plucked out of the burning. It's like you barely survived this judgment that I poured out against you. Five warnings and all five warnings are dismissed By Israel. Five distinct judgments from God. And they are all disregarded. After every single one. Yet you did not return to me. Declares the Lord. Now this is going to bring us. To a very specific application. And I'm going to give to you the application at the end. But I'm going to give it to you now. And this very specific application. Is going to prompt a very specific question. At the conclusion of the message today, I'm going to give to you this application. Do not disregard the warnings and judgments of God. Okay, that's, that's a very simple, straightforward application from the text. God gives warning after warning after warning after warning. You did not return. You did not return. You did not return again and again and again. How do we apply that to today? Well, here's a very simple application. Don't disregard God's warnings to you. Don't disregard God's judgments or his chastisement. Okay? Now, some of you may have already guessed what the very specific question is. What this application prompts a question, and the question is, how can I know when God is warning me of something? right? Because, why do we need this question? We need this question because sometimes hardships are the result of God's warning, okay? Remember what uh, C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's megaphone to the soul, okay? Sometimes, hardship is god warning us sometimes hardship is not god warning us but teaching us something teaching us endurance teaching us how to rely on him teaching us how to trust in him teaching us how to delight in him and sometimes hardships are just kind of a general result of the fall we live in a fallen world and hardships happen to everybody Okay, So, if I, for instance, get sick, or if I go through some financial hardship, is that God warning me to repent from some sin? Because, John, you just said, don't disregard the warnings of God. But if I get sick, or if I have financial, or this, that, 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 is that God warning me? Now, here's what we know. We know that in Amos 4, it definitely was the case, right? We have God's revealed will here. And in God's revealed word, we know that the hardships and the judgments and the warnings that Israel faced was a warning to repent from their sin. We know that. But the question is, is it always the case? There are two errors to avoid, and we saw these recently at the last few Wednesday evening prayer meetings as we've been looking at Psalm 38, okay? I'm going to give you two errors, okay? Error number one, hardship is always the result of personal sin. That's an error. Error number two. Hardship is never the result of personal sin. You haven't helped us at all trying to get closer to this. Okay. Now, correct theology and sound doctrine would modify these two errors so that we could conclude the following. These are true now. Those were errors. These are true. Number one, hardship is sometimes the result of personal sin number two hardship is sometimes not the result of personal sin haven't gotten any closer to figuring this out yet have we the question then is how do we know the difference you want to know the answer i don't know (laughs) wait did do you remember, Friday night, shepherding group, we talked about this, remember? What is the, how do we find the will of God? And what did R.C. Sproul talk about? He talked about we have God's revealed will and we have God's hidden will. Revealed will is in scripture. Hidden will are the secret things that belong to the Lord. And so I don't necessarily know when I face one of these things, what's going on here. Okay? Okay. But i'm going to suggest hang with me for a second here because this may sound a little bit odd that i'm saying this but um so so withhold your judgment till the end okay i'm not sure that it really matters a lot that we know and let me explain this let me give you an illustration Imagine with me for a moment that you are a, uh, a bomb technician, okay? And you are regularly called in to disarm explosive devices. And I, and I don't know what all the statistics are. I'm going to make up some statistics. But just imagine with me for a moment that your boss tells you that 50% of the devices that you are called to are going to be duds, fakes, and 50% of the devices that you're called to are going to be real, live, and armed. Okay? Pretend that that's the case. And you get to your first assignment, and you get dressed all up in your gear. And um, before you go in, you talk to your boss, and you say, hey, I, I just want to know, before I go to this one, can you tell me if it's a dud or if it's live? <laughs> He's going to look at you, number one. Are you insane? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why? How can you even ask that I don't know. This is why you're called here to, to, to figure this out for us. And he's going to simply tell you I have no idea, but treat it as if it were armed. Okay? Now, the Christian face is a similar task. You may face a trial and you may wonder whether or not this is God warning you to repent or not. Is this trial, quote unquote, armed or not? And my advice to you is to at least initially treat it as if it were armed, meaning this entertain the possibility that God is trying to get a hold of you. I'm not calling you to live in perpetual doubt, and perpetual chaos. But I am saying that it is right to enter into a trial and to say, let me do an, in, an introspection of my life. Let me, let me do inventory. You see, am, am, I, am I following what God has called me to do? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? If you face financial ruin or a health crisis... Here's what you are supposed to do. This is actually where there's many reasons why it is part of God's good design that he created the church. Okay? There is no perfect church. Our church is not perfect. You all and me are a bunch of sinners. Okay. With the imperfections and the sinfulness of the church, God has still ordained the church to exist, and he is, has given this as one of the most basic institutions of society. A healthy society needs a church. It needs a healthy church. Okay? A society cannot remain healthy without a church. Okay? Just like society cannot remain healthy without a family unit, cannot remain healthy without a church. With what we understand as being the shortcomings and the sin and all that in the church, nevertheless, this is God's design. Okay, And in this, here's what you are supposed to do. Here's your task. You are to go up to some of your most trusted and honest friends who are believers in Christ... And simply ask this question: do you see anything in my life that I need to repent over and By the way, if somebody comes up to you and asks you that question, you have an obligation to be honest with them okay how many of you have how many of you have ever taken this charge seriously i need do you see any sin in my life? Do you see any sin in my life? And then they say, oh, no, you're fine. You're good. Anyone ever experienced that? No, 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 no. But really, you have like 20 things in your mind that you're thinking. That they okay? You will do people a favor by being honest about that. You don't, be, you don't have to be a jerk about it, but be honest about it, okay? And simply say, you know what? I've noticed this. Can you help me understand what's going on there? So that, that's... that's one of the, 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 the tasks here is that you do the hard work of introspection. You do the hard work of seeking out a multitude of counselors, as Proverbs reminds us. And you read scripture and you pray, and then you make your conclusion. I'm going through a hardship. I'm going through a trial. I'm going through this. Help me understand, God, if there's something I need to repent over. Okay? Uh, and again, I, I guess I did have the... Uh, Oh, I don't have it up on the screen, but I did have the C.S. Lewis quote here where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So we are to simply look at this passage and we are to simply say, God gives warnings to Israel and they ignored them. Let me not be like Israel and ignore those warnings. How do you know if it's a warning or not? It's hard work and you have to ask the right questions, and seek out wisdom, and pray, and get counsel, and all those kinds of things, and then make your conclusions. But listen to this megaphone, Israel did not do. And the heat is about to get turned up in the next verse, because we have in verses 12 through 13, the judgment of God. And we simply read here in, uh, in this passage, therefore, Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. O Israel, for, befo- for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts is his name. Okay? Let me paraphrase verse 12 for you in the ver- in the words of one commentator. You haven't seen anything yet. Taken them to the heights of judgment, and now he says, the most serious of them all, and that is prepare to meet your God. You have not, you cannot imagine what that is like. You and I cannot imagine what that is like. Imagine an unbeliever. Uh, imagine being someone who has never repented and believed in Jesus Christ, and you stand condemned before a thrice holy God, and you stand in front of him for the very first time. I don't have words in the English language that will describe the sheer terror that will be coursing through every vein of your body. You will be absolutely terrified. And you will fall on your face, and it will be too. Late. Prepare to meet your God. If you are here and you are an unbeliever, you haven't seen anything. Okay, you ever talk to you ever, you ever share the gospel with someone, and I've had this happen a few times, and uh, you 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 warn them of the danger of hell, and they respond with something to the effect of, I, 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 think, I think this is hell right here. Anyone ever had that encounter where someone says, I'll tell you what hell is, this is hell. You haven't seen anything. Pick. Pick the most oppressed The most miserable creature on this planet. And compared to hell, that's like heaven. (laughs) Prepare to meet your God. You have seen nothing yet. You'll notice that the word therefore is used in verse 12. This word is here to signal to us the result of the accumulated guilt and failures of Israel. This, 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 this. You ignore this, you ignore this. You didn't return, didn't return. Therefore, this is going to happen. Therefore, because you ignored God's repeated warnings and patience and mercy and grace, therefore, because of that, prepare to meet your God. Another commentator compares everything in verses 6 to 11 to a warm-up drill when seen in light of verse 12. This has all been warm up for the real thing. This is the final judgment, the final destination. Israel must prepare to meet God because the most intense is yet to come. According to Deuteronomy four twenty four, God is a consuming fire. Now, this preparation to meet the Lord is something that we find elsewhere in Scripture, specifically what this encounter will look like. And here's what the encounter looks like, okay? It looks a whole lot like God standing there and you falling on your face. Isaiah 45 and verse 23. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Again, you can do that now or you can do it under compulsion later. Philippians two ten through 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans fourteen ten through 12, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Everyone, whether they are prepared or not, will one day meet God face to face. And in order to motivate his audience to consider this meeting with God, Amos gives us what some commentators call a hymn fragment in verse 13. God gives to us in verse 13 a picture of his character, which is actually very similar to uh, God's self-revelation to who? Does anyone remember a book of the Bible where somebody was asking a lot of questions about God? And instead of asking and answering him outright, God just said, I'm gonna go into a monologue on my character. Job. Okay? Job 38 through 42. Mark that passage in your Bible, okay? Job continues to say, Give me a meeting with God. I want a day in court with God. Why is God doing this? This is not fair. This is not just. I'm suffering. And what does God do? Where were you? When I created the world, Job, tell me. Where were you, Job, when I told the waves of the ocean that you could come here, but you could not come here? Do you see a deer in the woods when it gives birth? <laughs> or, 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 did you pound in the, the, the anchor points, the foundations of the world? Did you do that, Job? Tell me. Job's, if you could frame um, the book of Job in two statements, I think you could frame it this way. In the book of Job, Job asks the question, <clears throat> why? And God gives the answer, who? He never says because. He says who? Anytime God wants to shake us up a bit and get a hold of us and wake us up, he always gives to us his character. That's what's going on here. And so in verse 13, God God has gotten to the height of this. He said, I've warned you, I've warned you, I've warned you. You've ignored me, you've ignored me, you've ignored me, you've ignored me. Prepare to meet your God. And by the way, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Let me give to you an autobiography. Of myself so that you can become better acquainted with me that's supposed to jolt you that's supposed to wake you up that's supposed to wake you out of your drunken stupor and become sober and say this is who I'm messing with he gives us a picture of his character he says that he forms the mountains he creates the wind he even tells man his thoughts he controls light and dark and he treads all over the earth Whenever God wants to silence men, he describes his character, his attributes, and his works. You say, but this, uh, I am holy. (laughs) I don't, what do you say to that? Okay, your will, not mine. (laughs) I submit to you. You're in control, not me. It has a realignment aspect to it. It's like splashing cold water in your face. Oh, oh, here I am. This is where it wakes you up to reality. So where do we go from here? Let's remind us of uh, remind ourselves of the passage from Peter. We started off with 2 Peter 3. I want to end with 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Why has is, why is Christ not come back yet? Not because he's slow or has forgotten about his word. It says, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why, is, why are we... Why, why are we still here in the year 2023? Because God is patient so that more people will repent and believe on Christ. Don't presume on that. Don't wait another five, don't wait another. Repent. He's giving you Time. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You see that? That's the Amos passage right there coming into Second Peter. He's, slow, he's not, not slow to fulfill his promise, but he's patient. But then it will come. Prepare to meet your God. It will come. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and all the works that are done it will be exposed. You can think of Amos 4, 6 through 13 as following this framework. God is patient, but his patience will not last forever. There will come a day when his patience is over with and we need to prepare for this day. Okay? There are all kinds of things we prepare for in this world. Some of them real things and some of them fake things that we kind of just convince ourselves and sensationalize in the media and so on and so forth. Whatever it might be, Strip all that away. There's one thing that is the foremost need to prepare for, and that is to meet God face to face. And so I have together, uh, put together here, uh, sometimes I do this, a mixture of applications and principles that are kind of just mixed together here, okay? The first one is kind of more of a, a principle but that is this, even with ch- chastisement, people will never seek the Lord on their own. This, this passage should teach us that. Even after five warnings and chances to repent, Israel was stubborn. Now we also know this from where else? Romans 3.11. No one seeks for God no nobody seeks god this means that we need god to draw us to himself i want to read to you an anonymous um uh, by an anonymous writer a a hymn just uh one one um stanza here but a a hymn that makes this same point that that romans 3 so we have an amos 4 an example of people not seeking god we have in romans 3 a clear statement that people will never seek God on their own. And then we have a hymn here that I think uh, makes this point very clear, and it says this, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. (laughs) In other words, I I was seeking the Lord, and then suddenly I realized, oh, you were prompting me to seek you, Lord. And then he says, it was not that I found, oh, Savior, true, no, I was found of thee. It wasn't that I found you, but you found me and then stirred me to seek you. So that's the first um, point of application or, or principle here is that on our own, we will go our own way. Second, at every tribulation you face, ask yourself what the Lord wants to see as the outcome. Now, we're getting into some of the hidden will of God here. I understand that. But here's what I'm saying. Ask if God is reminding you to repent. We might say it this way. Do not disregard the warnings and judgments of God. Don't disregard those. You should seek out counsel. And again, as I mentioned earlier, if someone seeks out counsel from you, take it seriously. Okay? Someone comes up to you and says, I'm facing this trial. Do you see anything in, in me that I need to repent over? And, oh, no, it's not that. That's not, that's not being a good friend, okay? What, is a good, what does Proverbs tell us a good friend is? Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, okay? When a friend wounds you, of a friend, a true friend, is someone who's willing to wound you in order to heal you okay but is willing to wound you to risk a true friend is willing to risk your friendship to tell you what you need to hear okay so i'm saying be that person if someone comes to you. third we must always repent immediately keep short sin accounts okay repent immediately okay there's one uh um, writer in in some of the marriage books that i've read one one writer uh talks about this is especially important in uh, between a husband and wife okay that if there is sin between you, you reconcile immediately um, and he gives this illustration of a husband and wife who are um at odds with one another and he and he says you should not allow anything to interrupt your reconciliation. He says, if someone comes to the door, you need to reconcile before you let that person in the door. And he says, if it's raining outside, you better hurry up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you, you, you better get this right immediately. Okay, and, that, and that's one of the things that we're seeing in this passage is Israel is supposed to repent now. And, and I cannot tell you how many times I have heard people say, I'll worry i 'm going to live my life that I want now, and later I will do that. You always repent to the Lord and to others immediately. Short sin accounts. do not let that go. It, listen, first of all, it 's a sin to let it go. Second of all, it makes a mess of your life. It really does It's the difference between um, it's, it's a difference between cleaning your house every day and cleaning the house of a hoarder okay, where you've got these paths throughout the house, okay, people who do not immediately repent over their sin are hoarders. And it gets messier and messier and messier and messier. And then at that point, you're like, I don't even know where this conflict began. It's just here all the time. And it's a mess. Well, you got to clean up the house. And that's going to take some effort. So always keep short sin accounts. And then finally, fourth, prepare, ourselves to meet our God through repentance and faith so that we will one day hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If you are an unbeliever, this preparation involves repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And for believers, we can prepare too. It's by continuing to believe and continuing to return to the gospel and continuing to repent and continuing to look to Christ and all of those things. And so may the Lord give us the grace to follow through in these things, because we know that apart from his grace, we cannot, and he is sufficient. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We thank you for the gospel and for Christ. Help us now as we go that we might um, just uh, apply what we've heard in the text today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.